What will characterize your closing moments on earth? Will they be fraught with regret of things past, fraught with fear of things future? Or will your dying moments be characterized by an inexplicable peace? This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of A Faith That Faces Death from Pastor Paul Twist. Pastor's text is the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and verses 20 through 22. The comedian Woody Allen summarized most of us when he said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Oh, we don't like facing certain facts of life. And that's why we put off making our wills, as well as funeral arrangements. We like to distract ourselves from our ultimate end with endless activities. But if truth be told, we do need to sit and think about what has happened to every member of the human race. In this two-part series, Pastor Paul Twist goes heart to heart with how we ought to face our ultimate destination. Are you looking forward to it? Or are you afraid? Let's listen in. Hebrews 11, verses 20 through 22. I'd like to back up a little bit in our scripture reading and go from verse 13 and following. So Hebrews 11, and I'll be reading from verse 13. The word of God says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And then our text for this evening, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Thus reads the word of the living God. The title for the message this evening is A Faith That Faces Death, and the reference there is to the fact that all of these men are commended for a faith that was expressed in their dying moments, on their deathbed, as it were. And this one observation immediately prompts the question as to what will be the testimony of your deathbed? What will characterize your closing moments on earth? Will they be fraught with regret of things past, 
fraught with fear of things future? Or will your dying moments be characterized by an inexplicable peace? Will your dying moments be characterized, as the author to the Hebrews says, by an assurance, an assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen? It's a sobering question to think upon. We don't often like to think about death, especially not our own death, but we would do well to ponder it. I'm reminded of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said exactly that, that we should think more about our death. He was a man who had learned how to die well. In his last few days on earth, he was able to write a note to his wife, Bethan, that simply said, do not pray for healing, do not hold me back from glory. He died well. And so the question that we think about this evening is, what will our death be like? You see, the question is not whether you will die. You will die. The question is, how will you die? What will be the nature of those final few days on earth? What will be the meditations of your heart as you recognize that your life is coming to an end? There is a sense in which a man's last words tell us everything we need to know about him. There's a real sense in which The dying moments of somebody's life are a portrait, a picture, a mirror, a window into his very soul, where we get to understand what's going on in his heart, because when you face death, you don't play games. When you face death, there is no room for games, for pretense. We put away all facades. We stop trying to impress who you are when you face death is who you truly are. We do well to think about those dying moments and what will be my faith. Where will my hope be set as I recognize that death has come? Now, our text this evening commends to us three men, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, to that very end. We see here three men specifically at the point of death, on their deathbed, and the author to the Hebrews is commending them as an example to us. The question that we must ask of them, the specific question, is what was the nature of their faith? You see, it would be a mistake for us to look at this well-known text, Hebrews 11, and to assume that the author has given us all of these portraits of faith because they express the same type of faith. This is not a cumulative list of the same expression of faith in each case. Rather, what we must realize and what we must come to terms with is the fact that the author to the Hebrews is weaving together a very complex tapestry, lots and lots of characters, and each one provides for us a very specific example. We have here a rich, rich portrait of biblical faith. And in each case, we must ask the question, what is the nature of the faith that we are being commended to? With Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, what specifically serves as an example? What is the nature of their faith? And I think we can conclude at least two features that serve as an example for us. There are at least two features of their faith that serve as an example for us this evening. The first is that their faith was one that had learned to submit to the ways of God. 
Their faith was one that had learned to submit to the ways of God. And secondly, their faith was one that had learned to look forward to the plans of God. They had learned to submit to the ways of God, and they had learned to look forward to the plans of God. And thinking again about the nature of our dying moments, you might even say that this is the biblical teaching about how to die well. You want to die well in a way that you are commended to others. Your faith is commendable in your dying days. Take note of these three men. Now, let us consider that first point. Their faith was one that had learned to submit to God's ways. The text reads, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And then by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus to the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The text is short, and so we have to do some work this evening in the book of Genesis to understand what the author to the Hebrews is doing with this narrative. So just turn back with me for a time to the book of Genesis, and specifically we'll begin in chapter 26. Now thinking about each of these characters in turn, beginning with Isaac, it is interesting to think about the fact that Isaac had witnessed firsthand, the very act of faith for which Abraham, his father, had been commended. Have you ever thought about the fact that Isaac had witnessed firsthand the very act of faith for which Abraham is commended? Have you ever thought about what it must have been like to be Isaac walking with Abraham up the mountain, saying, Dad, where, where are we off to? Dad, where's the sacrifice? What it must have been for Isaac to lie down and be bound by his own father, to look up into Abraham's eyes as Abraham raised the knife to put an end to the life of his son. What it must have been like for Isaac to hear the voice from heaven, stop, now I know that you love me. What it must have been like for Isaac to have walked through that whole ordeal and then to have faced tests of his own faith. You see, the reason I mention that is because you would think that that one episode had made an indelible mark on Isaac's soul, but it doesn't seem to have been the case. Because in Genesis 26, what we find is that Isaac now receives great and glorious promises from God himself. God says at the end of verse 3, I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. I will give to you your offspring as all these lands. These are no small promises. God is passing on to Isaac the promises that he'd given to Abraham. But then look immediately after, in verse 6 and following of this chapter, immediately after, we're into one of these strange wife-sister narratives in Genesis. Three times this happens, twice with Abraham, once with Isaac, where the patriarch goes into a foreign land, comes face to face with a foreign king, and he tells a lie. He says, she's, she's not my wife, she's my sister, thinking that that will be the means by which he gets to live and not be killed. It is an epic failure of faith at this moment. 
having just received these promises from God and having himself been through that ordeal where he saw the faith of his father Abraham. Early on in the Isaac narrative, we get the impression that here is a man who has much to learn as it concerns trusting God. Then we get to chapter 27, a familiar narrative where Isaac blesses Jacob. Isaac is old in age. His sight is failing him. His preference is to bless Esau, to give Esau the first blessing, the lion's share of the blessing. Even there, we see that Isaac is trying to go against God's ways because back in chapter 25, God had already said, the older will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. Jacob will be the one that rises up. God had already spoken on this matter, and yet we find Isaac trying to thwart God's plans. So he says to Esau, go out into the field, bring me back some game, make some stew so that I can give you the first blessing. He's cunning. He's trying to have it his own way. Rebecca over here, she then tricks him. She then goes to Jacob and says, quick, go and deceive your father. He puts on his hairy man outfit and he comes on pretending to be Esau. Isaac's unsure because his sight is failing. And sure enough, in 26 and following, he gives the blessing to Jacob. Verse 28, may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. The irony of his words, he doesn't realize what he's doing. And then sure enough, after Jacob departs, Esau comes in and between them, they figure out what has just gone on. And we see in verse 33, Isaac trembled very violently. Old Testament narrative doesn't often speak to emotions. When it does, we have to pay attention. And here is one of those places where the narrator is telling us something of his emotions. Isaac shook violently. He trembled a great tremble. Why? Because he has realized that he has been thwarted in his plans. I think this is a turning point in the narrative. Isaac is coming to terms with the fact that he can't beat God, that God will have his own way. The words of Genesis 25 that God had spoken are now coming to pass, even if it is through the trickery of his own wife. God will still have his way. Esau pleads for a blessing, and Isaac gives it to him. Now, you have to realize that blessings in the Old Testament are not just a father saying some, some nice words to his son. It's not just a father saying, I really hope that this is the path that the Lord has for you. The sense of the blessing in the Old Testament is one of a prophetic nuance. When the patriarch speaks in this way, it is forward-looking, and as one commentator says, it has the, the effect of bringing the future to pass. This is now what's going to happen, and they are irrevocable. Jacob has the blessing. And so Isaac, when he realizes, he doesn't fight. He doesn't try and change things. He simply gives what he can to Esau. And it's really not much because he's given so much to Jacob. Away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling. Away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword shall you live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. 
And it is at this point that the author to the Hebrews commends Isaac for his faith. Why? Because I think what we see here is a portrait of a broken man. A man who was characterized previously by his willingness to resist God, to fight God, to try and thwart God. And now a man at the end of his life, on his deathbed, who simply accepts that this is the way of the Lord. His faith, Hebrews tells us, is one that is to be commended. Why? Because it had learned to submit to God's ways. Now, moving on to Jacob, if Isaac was a fighter, even more so Jacob. Of all the characters within the Bible, Jacob is the one that we know most for fighting against God, for resisting, for being a trickster. He is cunning in his ways. Jacob's song is, I did it my way. One of the most helpful interpretive principles when you read the book of Genesis is simply to compare and contrast. So perhaps you've read through this book and you've noticed that the narrative has something of a a cyclical nature. It almost seems to repeat itself at times. I've already mentioned this evening about those three wife-sister tales. There are lots of narratives that are similar to previous narratives, and that's no accident. And what we're supposed to do there is, is to compare and contrast similar narratives. And it's often the case that where there are small differences, there is the window into the significance of the text. Think just by way of example about how it is that Jacob finds for himself a wife. Now, previously, Abraham had sent out his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And in that narrative, we see many prayers offered up to God. There is lots of searching for God's leading in the situation. The whole narrative is marked by that word of loving kindness all over, a dependency on the Lord. By contrast, we get to Jacob. He wants a wife. What characterizes the narrative? Not a dependence on God. When he finds the woman he wants, he says, I will work for seven years for my bride. I'll do the work here. And when he's tricked, when the trickster is tricked, when Laban deceives him, what does he do? He doesn't go to the Lord in prayer. He says, I'll work another seven years. Again, the impression that we're being given in the narrative is that here is a man who does not submit to God's ways. And then that leads us to chapter 32 and the episode where Jacob wrestles with God. Perhaps the episode for which he is most well known, Jacob wrestles with God. I've never wrestled, but I used to box. It's a silly sport. Something I learned is that three minutes in the ring with anyone is an incredibly long time. It's a lonely place, and three minutes is a long time. Jacob wrestled the whole night with God. What does that tell you about Jacob? It tells you that here is a man who is not willing to submit to the Lord's ways. Here is a man who is bent on doing things his way, on having his own plan play out. How on earth can we commend him for his faith? That leads us to chapter 48. This is the point at which Hebrews steps in and shows Jacob's faith to be an example. So look at this. Joseph brings to Jacob his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
He brings them to Jacob again on his deathbed, and he seeks Jacob's blessing on these two boys. Verse 13, Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Israel, that is Jacob, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger. His left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. At the last moment, Jacob switches the blessing. Now, Joseph is in fighting mode. Joseph's just being like his dad. And he says, no, no, dad, don't do it this way. Verse 18, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But look at this, verse 19, his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. And Jacob is commended. Now, what on earth is going on here? All the way through Genesis, there is this strange phenomenon of the brothers being switched. Jacob himself is an example of that. We don't always understand why. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel in chapter 4, but we do understand that this is the way that the world of Genesis works. For some reason, by God's plan, oftentimes happy to use deceitful, broken human beings, he keeps switching up the brothers. This is how the world of Genesis works. This is how God works. Jacob, the trickster, the fighter on his deathbed, switches his hands. I know, my son, I know, he says, at last I've come to terms with the way in which God works. At last I've come to accept that this is the way God works. This is the point in the narrative, Jacob's crowning moment, because he finally submits to God's will. It is on his deathbed that he has learned the lesson of faith, whereby he says, I want it to be God's way and not my way. But what about Joseph? If Isaac was a fighter, if Jacob was a fighter, surely not Joseph. Joseph is the one we love. Joseph is the hero. He could do no bad thing in his technicolor dream coats. It's interesting how we all have a tendency to open Old Testament narrative, and particularly the book of Genesis, we all have a tendency to want to read every character as the hero. There's something in us that wants to read each character as inherently good. We do it with David, and we do it with Joseph, and many more. Joseph is not as good as you might think. Or if I'm bursting too many bubbles right now, let me just say this. He is a complex character. It doesn't matter what Andrew Lloyd Webber says, Joseph is not that good. Don't forget that in chapter 37, he enters into the narrative doing what? Bringing a bad report to his father about his brothers. Back and forth, back and forth was his way, trying to get his brothers in trouble, painting a bad picture of them. And then he had some dreams about lording it over his brothers and ruling over them, and with a complete lack of social awareness, he gathers them together. Guys, guess what I dreamed last night? Who does that? You are listening to Timeless Truth Today. As you look over the arc of your life, do you see one that makes you excited about receiving a heavenly reward or one of regret? The Bible says that without faith, 
it is impossible to please God. Have you lived a life of faith that will please Him during the final moments of your life? If not, it's never too late to change the direction of your life, ending with joy instead of regret. And if you'd like to learn more about how to live in a way that is pleasing to God, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts. There you'll find teachings on a wide range of biblical themes, including how to please God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Listen tomorrow for part two of A Faith That Faces Death. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.